Steve. The Gospel lesson this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, the 13th chapter, and it's, it's not an easy passage to hear in some ways, and it's perhaps not as well known as some other parts of Scripture, but listen now for God's word to you today from the Gospel of Luke, the 13th chapter. At that very time, there were some present who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will also perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. And then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray that you will grant us the eyes to see, the ears to hear, the hearts and minds to understand your word and your world this day. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as he was trying to make a living by making music, by being a musician, the great composer Beethoven would often have to play piano in front of small audiences and the home or the salon of a wealthy patron. And sometimes when he got the sense that the people listening to him were really not that into the, to the sheer profundity and the beauty of the sounds that he was making, he'd play a trick on them. He'd perform one of his beautiful, slow, soft pieces of music, like the adagio from the Moonlight Sonata, He'd lull his listeners into a sense of peace and ease and relaxation. And then just as he reached the final notes of the piece, he would slam his elbow down on the keyboard and he would burst out laughing at all the shock that he had caused. Well, it's obviously no laughing matter when you look at the news today, these past few days, of all the terrible things that are happening in New Zealand or uh, Mozambique, Malawi, Southern Africa, Venezuela, Washington, D.C., Oakland, all these other places, all this terrible news. And, you know, that's the kind of feeling I get sometimes. My normally peaceful state of mind gets slammed by the realization that our world suddenly seems out of control, out of balance, out of tune. 
And like anyone else, I want to make sense of all this uncertainty. I want to set my mind at ease. I want answers for why something so horrible happened, for, for who is at fault, who made it happen, who's to blame, and what on earth are we supposed to do now? Now, in social psychology, a term gets used to describe our hardwired human inclination to uh, constantly try to seek or maintain or impose a sense of order, and that term is cognitive closure. Cognitive closure. We all want cognitive closure. We, we all want peace of mind, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that in constantly striving for certainty or assurance or closure, we human beings can end up in some pretty destructive dead ends. You know, we can grasp at any idea or any person who sort of promises to set things right or set our minds at ease or, or make everything okay or great again. We can unjustly lash out at other people who seem to threaten our security or our comfort or our way of life, especially if they're different from us. Or we can create a very false sense of security by ignoring all the realities all around us and within us. And when we do that as followers of Jesus, we cut ourselves off from a God who wants nothing more than to transform us by the renewing of our minds. That's what Paul says in Romans. In the text we just read from Luke's gospel, Jesus is on a path. He's on a journey south to Jerusalem. He is with his disciples. They're coming down from Galilee. And all along the way, you know, the whole 12th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has been warning them all the time about all the terrible things that might happen. The time is now, he says, for things to, to sort of come to fruition, for, for uh, the, the powers of this earth to ally themselves against him as God's uh, Messiah, but that God has a plan, even with all the terrible things that they're about to expect, about to encounter. And then, like clockwork, some other people come up to Jesus and they tell him a terrible story about what had happened down in Jerusalem to some other Galileans, just like the people Jesus is with. Other Galileans, they were in the temple praying, and then suddenly, or at the command, maybe, of Pontius Pilate, a bunch of Roman soldiers had come in and slaughtered them. The Bible says they mixed their blood with the blood of the animal sacrifices. And even hearing that news, Jesus, as a teacher, seems to think that what these people want from him is an explanation of why bad things happen to good people. You ever wanted that answer, too, for yourself? Yeah, we all do. It's a very old question. You see, at the time, at Jesus' day, most people believed that since God is control of everything in this world, if something bad happens to you, God either made it happen or let it happen as a way to punish you. Something you did wrong to deserve it. And you hear this understanding of, of uh, what the, what's called theodicy, of why bad things happen to good people. You hear it in the book of Job really clearly. 
the book of Job in the Old Testament, where one of Job's uh, supposed friends says to him, think, has a truly innocent person ever ended up suffering? Do genuinely upright people ever lose out in the end? It's my observation that those who plow evil and sow trouble reap evil and trouble. They get what they deserve. That was the common understanding of the time, and, and even a lot of people today still believe that. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus point blank and totally rejects such a blatant blame the victim mentality. He says very clearly, do you think those Galileans in the temple were slaughtered because they were bad people? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. And then as, as if his disciples didn't get the point of his message, he tells them about this terrible calamity of the Tower of Siloam in, in Jerusalem falling down and crushing 18 people. And he says, none of those people deserve to die either. They just died. Because God doesn't cause calamities in order to punish sinners or to test their faith or, or teach them a lesson or in service of some higher purpose that none of us can ever possibly discern through our tears. That is not the God that Jesus represents, that Jesus incarnates, incarnates. And it's not the God I believe in either. A lot of the time, bad things just happen and we don't know why. It's the way it is. And the real question, the profound question when bad things happen is, how do you respond when they do? Right? Because the reality is that life is a precious gift of a loving, creative God. But that gift, that gift of life is fragile. It can be lost, it can be broken in an instant. But it's also that fragility that lends life its urgency, its purpose, its meaning. The 19th century Swiss poet Henri Frédéric Amiel put it so well. You've probably heard these words before, or maybe. Life is short, he writes, and we do not have much time to gladden the hearts of those who walk this way with us. So be swift to love and make haste to be kind. And it's that sense of a sacred urgency that leads Jesus to tell a parable. It's kind of an odd story, isn't it? This owner of a vineyard goes to the field to check on the fruitfulness of his plants, and he notices that one fig tree, after three years of sitting in the field, has not borne any fruit. And he tells his servant, or his gardener, to cut it down, for why should it be wasting the soil? But the gardener says, in response, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. And if it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if it doesn't, then you can cut it down. 
And that's where the story ends. I noticed as we were reading it in the bulletin, at the end, a lot of you were turning the page trying to see what, what's, what's the end. But there isn't one. There's no closure. We don't know what happened to the fig tree, whether it bore fruit or not. But even so, that parable has a clear message. Now, to get to the message, a lot of people seem to assume and have written over the years and preached on it that they want to say that the landowner in the parable is a symbol for God and that the gardener in the parable is a symbol for Jesus. But nowhere in the Gospels do we get a message that you know, there's this angry God who just wants to rip out fig trees and rip out people's lives and only Jesus stands in the way to, to give us another year. We don't get that message in the scriptures. Instead, Jesus describes God as his father, a loving father, the kind of father who, who scans the horizon day after day looking for his wayward son to come home. The kind of God who's like a woman who sweeps her house all night looking for a lost coin, and then when she finds it, she puts on this huge party that costs more than the coin itself. So think of God as the gardener who has a passion for nurturing and saving fruitless fig trees and fruitless human beings, too. And that picture of God brings us to the idea of repentance. Repent, Jesus says. So a minister once told his congregation, the next week I'm going to preach a sermon about lying, the sin of lying. So in preparation, I want you all to read the chapter of Mark 17, and then I'll preach on it next week. So the following Sunday, the preacher gets up in the pulpit, and he asks, how many of you last week read Mark 17? And all the hands go up in the congregation. And then he smiles and says, Mark only has 16 chapters. I will now proceed with my sermon on lying. <laughs> See, that's how a lot of people understand repentance. They think of it as uh, something that's, well, here, here's, another, here's another thing. If anybody ever thinks of repentance at all these days, right? In a society that seems to you know, glorify narcissism and sort of celebrates any manifestation of self-esteem, whether it's real or not, in our culture, if anybody ever thinks of repentance at all, they think of it as, you know, there's sort of a set of rules you have to follow in order to be a good Christian. Don't drink, don't cuss, don't lie, don't skip church on Sunday. The list goes on. You've probably heard it ad nauseum your whole life. And it plays on a sense of guilt, implying that if you just try really hard to stop doing some bad stuff, that an easily offended God is more likely to take it easy on you when it comes to punishment. Now, of course, it's true that repentance, repentance involves taking stock of the failures in your life, the failures to hit the mark, what the Bible calls sin. Another not very popular word. So it's true that in all sorts of ways, we all need to change our ways. 
But repentance isn't just about judgment and guilt. It's about being open to a new way of thinking. In Greek, the language in which uh, Luke was written, the Gospel of Luke, the word for repentance is metanoia. Metanoia. Which literally means a change of mind and heart. It's a new way of seeing the world as it is, clearly, without any illusions. And it's also a way of seeing how God is already active right now trying to save this world and how God has, has given you and me a purpose to help with God's plan of salvation. And our purpose is to bear fruit. In Galatians 5, Paul writes and says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And none of us bear that kind of fruit all the time, not even a lot of the times, for some of us. But being a Christian is being captured by a vision that our lives have meaning when we are swift to love and make haste to be kind. That is what John the Baptist came to this world before Jesus and said, that is fruit worthy of repentance. So remember that the sin of the fig tree isn't that it did something necessarily bad. It's that it didn't do anything at all. It just sat there wasting soil. Failed to live into its purpose. And that makes me think of a beautiful short poem by the Japanese Christian Toyohiko Kagawa, who writes, I read in a book that a man called Christ went about doing good. It is very disconcerting to me that I am so easily satisfied with just going about. You see, going about aimlessly in life just doesn't cut it as a Christian. Because we do have an aim. And it isn't just sitting around trying to get cognitive closure in the face of suffering. Our calling is to seek peace and justice in healing first wherever we are, and not just peace of mind. That means that when we see a disturbing story in the news, we should pay attention to the signs of where God's grace and justice and mercy and healing are already, already at work. Even if those signs are as the newspapers, newspaper writers would say, even if those signs are below the fold, not the headlines. So as we're all still trying to come to grips this week with the terrible news of last week, 
of a cold-blooded massacre in Christchurch, New Zealand, and a devastating cyclone in southeastern Africa. Our challenge as Christians is to look below the fold, beneath the headlines. And it's at times like these when the, the, the now famous words of Fred Rogers from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, they really make sense. He said, when I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. And that's what you and I should do today, too. Look for the helpers. Because that's where God is in the midst of unthinkable suffering. And beyond looking for the helpers, we're called to be helpers, too. To bear the fruit of compassion and humility and self-giving love and selfless reconciliation. You could send money, as I invited you to do today, as our church is inviting you to do today. Send money to, to uh, missionaries in southeastern Malawi who are on the ground and, and actively trying to bring healing to people in need. Or you could reach out nearer to home in your own neighborhood to a Muslim person, say, who lives nearby you or even in your family. Reach out to them and, and meet them where they are and listen to their story and share your story because right now, I'll bet you anything, they're feeling really scared and confused and unwelcome right now. Lots of other people feel that way too. But whatever you do, remember that the first step in authentic helping often involves true repentance. It's taking account of the barriers to growth both within you and without you. And sometimes it takes a tragedy, it really does, to start that process of self-examination. Sometimes it just takes a moment of some self-realization, some truth, some image, some word that comes to you, whatever it is. Whatever it is that moves you to take stock of your life, ask yourself, what is it about me, the way that I interact with the world, that keeps me stuck in dead ends of anger or apathy or guilt or ignorance or self-absorption or blame? What is it about me? Uncover it and let God the gardener fertilize your soil. I'm going to close with something that appeared in the New York Times Magazine last week. I want to thank Eric Behrens, if he's here, uh, for pointing it out to me. In the New York Times, Rachel Howard writes about a time in her life when she was struggling with a, a nagging feeling of guilt. It involved a marriage that she'd entered in, into mainly as a way to to you know, achieve a sense of normalcy and comfort in life, and the marriage ended in divorce, even if the pain endured. And then three years later, she was in an Episcopal church in New York City on Good Friday, and as the priests left the sanctuary after the service, all she saw in front of her was a blank concrete wall. 
And she writes, Then I collapsed in the pew, sobbing. And a priest saw me, and he sat next, or she sat next to me and held me. She said I had to name the sin that kept me trapped. And I realized that I really had loved Bill. But by the time he proposed, I had started to change. I was 25 and scared and lonely, and I buckled. I married Bill for the security. I married him selfishly. I told the priest, I betrayed him. And then the priest invited Rachel to pray, using the Book of Common Prayer, to pray for God's mercy and to leave the sin and the guilt behind. And as she walked out of the church that night, she writes, I was a different person. She realized that guilt, when it is suppressed or unaddressed, can become a pathology, a sickness. Like any other unexamined, self-imposed barrier to growth, it poisons the soil of the soul that allows you to bear fruit. And she ends with these words about the season of Lent, the season that we're all now in. Lent is a passage moving us from paranoia to metanoia, from being literally out of our minds to being reconciled with our true minds through repentance. So my hope for all of you today in this place and watching us online is this season of Lent, whatever season that you find yourself in, that it is going to be fruitful for you. As you take stock, as you return to your senses, and as you reconnect with your purpose to help in God's continuing work of rescue and healing and reconciliation. In Jesus' name.